Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and today we are going to be examining an issue that affects the next generation, how the next generation of Christians are growing up, how they're being raised, and the educational model that they are being exposed to. Joining us is David Goodwin, the president of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. He's going to be able to talk to educational paradigms and models that will really help shape our understanding and shed some light on ways that we can really think through raising up our kiddos and young Christians so that they are prepared for the culture around all of us. It doesn't matter what country we're living in right now. Generally, the main culture's are hostile to the Christian faith. And we need to be raising our children with that understanding. So we're really thrilled to have David joining us today. David, thank you so much for coming and welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Andy. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Just to set the stage for everybody, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you've been doing, and what you're up to today? Well, uh, presently, I'm, I'm uh, the head of the Association of Classical Christian Schools, and we're kind of the umbrella organization that works with schools around the country, I'm a little more than 400 schools right now. But we're starting schools at an unprecedented rate, uh, trying to meet the demand. And so uh, that's a lot of what uh, I do these days is uh, speak and um, write in uh, description and in favor of the classical Christian model of education. Um, I've been involved in it. I was the head of a classical Christian school here in Boise, Idaho, called the Ambrose School for about 13 years. Um, Before that, I worked in the tech industry. So um, my background is more business, uh, but uh, I've been very passionate about classical education for quite some time. I think that perspective is going to lend itself very well to this conversation and to many of the our listeners who have different backgrounds and professions but know that they need to be active in helping shepherd their kids and figure out the educational solutions around them and for their communities. So the fact that you transition from a I guess a business background into helping with a school that's that's really good for us. And I will point out that you are a co-author of a book right now, The Battle for the American Mind, a book you wrote with Pete Hegseth, and that that I think is having a lot of success and it's opening a lot of people's eyes to these ideas of classical Christian education and and why it's important and what we're up against. So if our listeners want to get a good uh, snapshot of all of that, they can scoop that up. I know at bookstores or online, but that's been very successful. But for today's conversation, I, I want to make it as broad as possible so that this could be relevant to Christians in America, but Christians who may be in Europe or Asia or Africa. How did you, again, as we're thinking as of parents that might be listening, grandparents that might be listening, how did you come to become interested in Christian education and in particular classical Christian education? 
Well, I hadn't given uh, Christian education very much thought. I was in my 20s when I got involved in this. And so at that time, uh, we our, our kids came later, so I didn't really even have kids. I worked in youth groups and I worked in industry and I was a Christian, but I was struggling to find a depth in the in the spiritual lives of a lot of the people I worked with, particularly in the in the youth groups and what have you. And I think that I had a vague idea that it was because they really hadn't ever been rigorously educated. Um, I later found out that it wasn't really the rigor that was the uh, concern. It was the way they were educated. And pretty quickly, I could understand that the when I fell into the first group of classical educators that I came into contact with by the Lord's happenstance or by, by the Lord's will there, that first group had something I'd never seen before, and that's the integration of everything in the world with Christ, um, which typically I, you know, kids I'd known who'd gone, I went to public school, but kids I'd known who'd gone to Christian schools typically had the same types of classes. You know, they had social studies and they had, you know, language and they had English and they had uh, math and science. And then they had a Bible class and sometimes a um, chapel once a week. And so they still bifurcated uh, education. Now, maybe they had Christian textbooks or something. But at the end of the day, they were bought into this idea that the kingdom of, of God and the kingdom of man were two different things. And one, you know, one reigned in secular subjects and the other in Christian subjects. And so when I bumped into classical education, it just completely rewrote that narrative. And that's what got me immediately interested. Yeah. So all these topics interrelate. They all fuse together. And I imagine most of our mature Christian listeners would agree that we're not to compartmentalize our lives. We we nod and we assent to that. But it is interesting when we take a, a closer look at how we're approaching school, how we approach our lives. At times, we can be doing that. So you're looking at this program and you're starting to see how it's been integrated and it allows people to take any anything that they're learning about and, and tease it out, tease that thread back to God, to their faith, to the reality and the objective truth of God being present with us, having created all things around us. As you started to do more research into this, I imagine a lot of stuff started to, a lot of fireworks started to go off in your mind and you came across some some interesting things. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, I, I think like so many people, I had a pretty solid set of assumptions that I brought to the question of education when I got involved at first. Um, what is it there for? Well, it teaches you knowledge and skills that can be used to get a job or it it helps you learn science and math that are valuable as practical subjects in this world. I think that um, the pers- first epiphany I had, I was riding in a car with a man who we uh, at the time had just hired as the head of school at the little school that I was involved with, but uh, he's since become one of the leaders in the classical Christian movement. His name is Andrew Kern. And he um, asked me what education is. And I came up with, you know, a rather conventional description, something like I just said a minute ago. And he responded, uh, you know, there was some silence. I could tell he wanted me to ask him the same question. So I asked back and he says, the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. And my immediate reaction to that was, well, that's so general and so broad. It it really is a, not a very meaningful assertion. And he added to it by means of the seven liberal arts. But what I came to understand is that 
the word wisdom and the word virtue as they are used in a modern English context don't even begin to scratch the surface of what those words meant in the classical context. Yeah. And when you unpack virtue and wisdom, and this is what we do a bit in Battle for the American Mind as I, I go into this at some length, when you unpack those two things, they basically describe the shaping of a child into a wise and mature Christian. And so it's not virtue as in don't steal and don't lie and don't uh, disobey your parents, although those are, of course, three very good moral lessons. But it's virtue in the sense of shaping what the student loves, what they, what the, what affection that they have for things. So, for example, a young child, if you teach them to keep their room clean early on and you stay with it, pretty soon, that's the only way they want the room to be. I know parents may not Think about it that way because you probably aren't consistent enough for long enough. But if you do it long enough, any habit that you form with a child will become an affection. And so these are the kinds of things we, we do in classical schools. We form affections through the use of habits, what we call liturgies. We, we develop an affection for reason and how to reason well, the training of logic, uh, formal logic, the training of a student to speak eloquently and with uh, winsomeness so that they're they're not, you know, higher, you know, sort of talking above everyone, but who can really uh, communicate well and think well. And that's, of course, the rhetoric, which is the third phase of the trivium. So that was the first epiphany I had was shifting my mindset from thinking of education as a place where you learn stuff to a place where you were shaped into somebody you were going to be in the future. And it's a whole different process if that's what you want to achieve. Yeah. And I imagine as you were learning more, you're researching more, um, you're talking about wisdom, virtue, the presence, the discussion of God and a transcendent reality. You realize that that had been dislodged purposefully in many and most classrooms and that it was part of a concerted effort. Could you speak to that? Well, that's the beginning of the battle for the American mind, that is the battle. Because it's kind of a, a bootstrap kind of situation where most of us were raised in progressive schools. And that's because the progressives, and this is not a, something that's unknown. Everyone knows that the modern school system is called progressive, in quotes, because it was invented by the progressives in the first two decades of the 20th or yeah of the 20th century they'll tell you that in the textbooks at social studies textbooks that you get at your local high school when you go through at a public high school what they don't tell you is that they actually undermined something called the western christian paideia in order to take over the hearts and minds of America. And they did it by replacing God and Christ in the classroom with this generic form of American exceptionalism. And then that became the new national uh, religion that they were trying to promote in the classroom. Now, of course, parents were would have been pretty reticent in, say, 1910 to turn off all the Christianity in the classroom and turn on American exceptionalism. But over the course of about 20 years, they were able to achieve that. The progressives were. And once Christianity was out, they were then able to shift the paideia. And we talk a lot about paideia in the book. It's kind of a uh, obtuse word that's difficult to understand because there's no English translation for it. I mean, in the Bible, you'll find, I think, about seven different words used in Ephesians 6 to attempt to translate paideia, which is the word that's used there. Fathers raise your children in the paideia of the Lord. So that word, that Greek word, like many Greek words, is so loaded with meaning that a uh, guy wrote a 
a treatise on it, a fairly famous guy um, who was a Harvard scholar. And it was like, I don't know, two or 3,000 pages long, just describing what it was. Um, so uh, that's the that's the kind of complexity it is uh, or that it brings to to um, kind of our our work. But the early progressives then covered their tracks because since they were the ones writing the textbooks, they could say, well, before progressive education, America really didn't have schools. It had these one room schoolhouses that uh, taught reading, writing and arithmetic and were limited. Uh, and they um, they really didn't even go past the seventh or eighth grade. And that was sort of the the quick brush aside that was that was uh, given in textbooks the book battle for the american mind reveals that actually there's a much much bigger and deeper backstory that goes back almost 1800 years uh that christian classical education had been at the center and at the the base of all western cultures and paideia one of its weird functions is that it basically shapes culture so the the Christian culture started to dissolve there right between, oh, 1920, 1940. Uh, it consummated by 1960. Most people think, you know, that prayer being taken out of the schools in 1960 or the Bible being taken out was the beginning of the problem. <clears throat> it was really just the um, the effect of 40 years or one generation of progressive removal of Christianity from uh, the, the entire <clears throat> construct of learning in school. And so that's that's uh, detailed in Battle for the American Mind. It's an interesting uh, sequence. We go into the people and the institutions involved in doing that. And I would say that the progressive model of education has only progressed and accelerated since then. A lot of parents right now are concerned with what they are seeing in their classrooms, the curricula that are being published, uh, the texts. Of course, when people got a closer look at what was being taught during the, the pandemic two years ago, uh, that sent off a lot of alarm bells too. We will return to the podcast momentarily, but first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. Um, but you're talking about lead and lag indicators, for lack of a better sense, in some cases, like when we saw a uh, Supreme Court ruling that prayer in a school was somehow unconstitutional. You're saying that that's not the beginning of the problems. That's actually a lag indicator that came far after some of these initial yeah, steps. The battle, had been the taken. battle was over by that point. 
they'd already pretty much done, removed everything but prayer and yeah. and a little bit of Bible reading. And the funny thing is, is that's what we started talking about. Uh, the, the Western Christian Pi Day and the prior system that was in place before the progressives took it over, you learned to read, you learned to think, you learned science, you, which was called natural history at the time. You learned all this stuff in the context of Christianity. And all that was um, long gone even before the 1960, I think 61, 62, 63 decision. What is fascinating is if anybody gets their hands on like a high school essay uh, from a hundred years ago, it it's shocking in many cases. They're 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 using Latin phrases. They're having very articulate arguments placed. It's very complex. It looks more like a a postdoctoral work now. So there there really was a, a pretty significant shift. But okay, so there's that side of the coin. On the flip side, now. There's an effort to reclaim this classical Christian model. You're a part of it. You've been a part of it for several decades. It's, I'm, I'm guessing it's about three decades on right now. How is well, that progressing? Um, it, it's been, it's seen steady growth between, um, oh, about 1994 and uh, 2014. Um, we, we had steady growth. We grew up to around two, 300 schools. Um, and now it's just taking off <clears throat> largely because people are realizing, and this is really why we wrote the book. I mean, so, you know, the providence of God in, in this book is, is stunning to me in the process of the book, because basically the story was that, uh, Pete Hegseth, who's the co-author of the book was a, or is a Fox news, um, contributor. And he, that's his day job. And he had contacted me and long story short, he learned about classical education and just said, we've got to, we've got to do something to get the word out about this. But at the time, this was 2019, uh, 2020, early 2020, there was no COVID. There were no riots. There were no, I mean, this stuff, if you remember, sometimes we tend to forget how quickly the world has changed in just a few short years. So we did a, a documentary for Fox called The Miseducation of America. It's a five-part series on Fox Nation that chronicles both what classical education was and how the progressives took it over and what the consequence of that is. And he uh, encouraged me to write a book. I, the book I'd already kind of developed, but he... He then, in order to get, uh, you know, more of a wider audience, he signed on and we co-authored uh, some of it. I had a lot, of, a lot of it stuff that was originally in the manuscript. But the uh, providential part is that this thing, you know, it takes a year, year and a half to write a book. And during that time, education exploded. And um, when this thing hit the market, um, you know, HarperCollins was going along with it initially because uh, Pete is a fairly well-known guy, so he can sell books. But what's selling the book at this point is parents seeking refuge in a storm because the the storm hit right when the book hit. And that was purely by the providence of God, because, you know, obviously at one point we, we had it slated to be out a little earlier than it was. And they ran, you know, the, the supply chain shortages uh, ran out of paper. So it got delayed and even that helped. Right. So when it landed, it hit the top of the New York times list uh, almost over, well, overnight. And uh, then was there for several weeks and stills on the, on the list at this point. 
um, because it um, seems to have resonated with a, a period in time when parents need a solution that, you know, they, they sometimes walk into a school that's a private school and they don't see a lot of difference from what, you know, they get free at the public school or they pay for it at the private school, but are they really getting something that's markedly different? Mm -hmm. And um, when they aren't quite satisfied mm -hmm. with that, they seem to be looking at classical education. Well, and just to, to double back a bit, I think that the more people will learn about it, the more intriguing it's going to become, especially for uh, Christians and even I think just for other people as well. It, it's It's fascinating how it really opens up the minds and the hearts of people. And when our founders were writing all the, the materials in the United States, the American founders, they were writing these eloquent pieces. Those were classically trained. That's why you see the, the strong argumentation. That's why you see the, the Latin references, the history, the knowledge, the awareness of, of governmental systems, the knowledge of the shortcomings of the nature of man. And it really is what allows people to be a self-governing people in many ways. It's this recognition of these principles that can come into effect. So the more people are going to find out about this, I think that there's going to be even more interest generated by all of that. Um, before we uh, move on, though, one of the things that we have talked about on this podcast before is how in many respects in the cultures that we're living in as Christians— we're in a very real war over the dictionary and that what words have meant and what they mean today is often contested. Often there's attempts to subtly make changes in words and vocabulary and terms. Have you seen that uh, in your last several decades looking at classical Christian education and the culture around us? Has that played a factor into uh, that yes. work? Uh, you're actually striking at a very big topic, a uh, very important topic, the importance of words. I mean, of course, in Greek, the the word often translated uh, the word in English is, is logos, which is one of the four central words in classical education. It's in, in the book I describe classical Christian education and logos is, of course, central to that. Of course, Jesus was referred to as the logos. Um, the importance of that is that words um, really shape our conception of reality. And they, the, you know, in the book, we talk a little bit about Saul Alinsky and his rules for radicals. And the left understands this. They know this. Um, we talk in the book. In fact, um, I've just released the first of a two-part series on my Substack at davidgoodwin.substack.com. Uh, the description of how the <clears throat> progressives began pulling the church away from everyday life and issues. And <clears throat> the second part this week is, that's going to release is uh, response in the New Republic in 1916, which was the primary uh, publication of the progressives. And it's a response to a Catholic priest who's protesting the regulation of orphanages by the state um, in New York. And the editorial board of the New Republic takes a moment to explain that they have redefined democracy. 
uh, and that uh, democracy was once, I am paraphrasing here, but it was once, uh, it once meant a form of government that it was a protest against aristocracy and the power of government. But <clears throat> the new word democracy, the new term that they were bringing to, to the fore was to find the positive assertions or positive influence that democracy could have socially in sort of a socialistic context. So that's an example right there. If, if your readers or your listeners go out and look at that, um, when it, like I said, I think it's a couple of days from releasing, but it's a, it was what caught me and got me into the writing of the book's manuscript originally was these people knew exactly what they were doing. They were taking control of the language. They were, um, changing word meanings so that we would take something we loved and then assume that it must be a good thing. If, if democracy meant this, uh, socialism, then socialism must be a good thing. And we already see that. I mean, if you look today, um, you've got Democrats and Republicans, both of whom are arguing for how the government can solve your problems. Yeah. Nobody would have been arguing that a hundred years yeah. ago because the government had two problems to solve, you know, secure the nation internationally yeah. and <clears throat> establish justice internally. Those were the two things it did. Um, this idea that, uh, you know, uh, now it's a question of how how government solves the problem, not whether they should even be solving it. It's so that's presumed. an example. Yeah, there's an example of how a word democracy was hijacked. The meaning changed. It was injected into our, uh, our lexicon over the course of a century to mean something it never meant. And they did it. And so that that uh, New Republic article will publish and, you know, people can read for themselves. This is the stated way they use words to twist things. And that's important for us as Christians just to be clear-eyed about the conversations playing out in the public and the cultures around us so that we can make sense of it and be discerning and not just fall for any baited hook that's dangled in front of us and presume that we're, we're using words the same way. Oftentimes we're not. Um, but we need younger Christians. We need children who have the capacity to discern that as well and to, to model that which is, again, another reason why I think the classical Christian model will help. I think in many ways it helps people to think clearly. Not, It's not teaching them what to think. It's teaching them to think clearly. And so they, they, they don't get snowed. Um, it draws order out of the chaos that's around us. So there's this is really, really good stuff. Um, and I, and I, that's what I appreciate. Well, but I think appreciate about some it. people who look at classical Christian education might look at the amount of Latin and Greek that we teach in the schools and say, why are you teaching old dead languages? Well, they're not really dead. They are the form formative languages of English. So they are the foundation of where English came from and it helps students understand words and figure out what they really mean when you know what the roots mean and yeah. how they are, how they were used a hundred yeah. years ago, 500 years ago. I mean, it's very interesting just reading uh, children's books from the 19th century. You find out words like gay were very different. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously that's almost yeah. a, a joke, but it's, it's real in that um, we need to, we need to be training our children in language you know, we tend to throw off the languages and look for things like science and math, but language is where the bulk of the um, rubber meets the road. So here's this educational model that's been 
uh, tried and true for centuries, for over a millennia, and it helps people to integrate the world as it is of the objective reality and the beauty and the goodness and the virtues that is evident in the world. And it has a consolidated under framework with the gospel, with the, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously this has many benefits that extend beyond the United States. And you, as the Association of Classical Christian Schools, you are uh, seeing development across the the oceans. I, I saw that there are some developments in Latin America, some schools cropping up there. Uh, there's some interest starting to bud in Europe, Africa as well, Asia as well. So this is extending around the globe, um, particularly with the in the book, you describe a Western Christian paideia. Are you starting to see any inroads um, further into like continental Europe or all of these European countries that share that history and that background? I know it's a very small uh, sampling of schools there right now. But are you starting to sense that there's a movement there that Christian families can can really help? Well, you know, stand Europe up? is the toughest. I think many missionaries know this. Uh, Europe is the toughest nut to crack. I, I I can think of a Chinese school that I worked with, and I'll leave obviously all the information out because they're not supposed to exist. But a classical Christian school in China and. From their point of view, uh, they were asked at one point, you know, why would you want Western Christian paideia? And they understood that Western doesn't refer to Europe. It refers to civilizations that descended from the Greek, Roman, and Hebrew uh, tradition in in a fused kind of a way when Christianity became the world religion probably by about the sixth century. <clears throat> That's what Western is to us. So oftentimes people think of Western as Western Europe. It's gotten a lot of negative connotations because they as people associated with slavery and those sorts of things. This goes back 2,500 years, even 10,000 years is what we're talking about. So for the folks in China, they weren't talking about white Europeans. They were talking about the West as being the fount of the beginning of Christianity and logic and the Greco-Roman sort of legal system, you know, people don't realize, you know, a jury-based legal system was formed, as you mentioned earlier, our founding fathers were great students of Greece and Rome, and they, that was Greek, that came directly from the Greeks. Um, Most of our political structure is from um, the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, So I would say that, Worldwide, we're seeing a lot of interest in the Western Christian paideia, not because it involves white Europeans, but because it involves Christ at the center of a world or of governance system, a national governance system and life system that is all oriented around Christianity. And in Africa, we, I don't remember, Rafiki is the primary uh, classical Christian um, school purveyor in Africa. And they, I, I think they have several hundred schools there. Uh, I know we were surprised by how many we had in China. We've got uh, Vietnam, uh, even there's some Korea. other countries. Yeah. Uh, there's some countries I won't even mention because it might g- give away too much, uh, but they're extremely hostile to yeah. um, anything, quote, Western, but they they mean, you know, kind of the current Western. 
And <clears throat> one can't blame them too much for being upset about the television and the movies that we send over there. So I think the classical Christian education in some ways from a missionary standpoint is healthier almost anywhere in the world except Europe. America is seeing a resurgence of it pretty strongly because we have retained a pretty strong spiritual, you know, that what other roughly 20% of Americans are what one would consider an evangelical Christian. So, Well, I am really intrigued by the international component of all of this. I did learn a little bit more about the, the Rafiki program that you talked about. I believe they're active in 10 African countries. Um, and they're seeing real success. This is allowing their students to really have all of the avenues to achieve, to think, to to debate, to be winsome, to lead, and to to do that all as followers of Christ. And it really integrates it all so beautifully. And I'm I'm excited about that. And I'm I just know that when I look at the cultures that I've had the privilege of uh, being around, I can only imagine the possibilities. I'm thinking of. Iran, the the Persian culture, they have such a rich history. They have such a rich history of of poetry, beautiful literature, and they can all that this integrates into that uh, classical model so well. You mentioned uh, the Chinese cultures and the the history that they can tap into and integrate that with uh, these these areas of educational understanding. It really is remarkable. So I'm very excited by the potential of all of it. And of course, many Christians, perhaps even some listening to this program are living in areas of the world, uh, like you, you hinted at that are very hostile, uh, that are authoritarian in nature. They are hostile to the Christian faith. Um, this is nothing new. This is something that's been about the Christian experience for, uh, since the church has been around. Um, and we've had some stories on this podcast of, Christian parents, you know, in the Eastern Bloc under communism, doing what they can to create a safe harbor in their homes and raise up their children with a Christian paideia, even when they had to send them to schools that were doing everything they could to combat their faith, reading to them great works, reading to them Tolkien. But what advice would you have for parents out there? And I would say in, you know, tough countries around the world, but it might even just be tough states around the around America or more secular, hyper-secular areas of the world that are really struggling, what advice would you offer to parents uh, when they're trying to raise their well, children? Well, the first thing I would Christian say is idea? find more parents like you. Education is, is a community activity, and especially with, with its influence in Paideia, um, it needs to be done by like-minded people together. And so if you can possibly find other people to come alongside you with the same mindset, read the same books, get book clubs going that will uh, start challenging. You know, there's 30 years ago when I got into this, there was one book. <laughs> now there's so many, I can't count them all uh, that, that describe uh, how to live life uh, in, in a way that is uniquely and distinctly Christian. And I think we have to return you know, to, to asking questions about marriage, to asking questions about children, to asking questions about education, to asking questions about uh, uh, church discipline, you know, all, all of the things. We kind of have to rebuild a culture and that wherever you are in this country and other countries, getting together with one or more other parents and trying to build a cadre or community around that. I think that's the first step. Beyond that, 
you know, in some countries, we've got one school struggling along right now in uh, the UK. We have at least one. I think there's two actually. Um, we've got a, we had a couple in France that 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 folded. We have one in the Republic of Georgia right now that is is uh, struggling along. I think, like I said, Europe's tough. The Eastern Bloc's a little easier. I think what you have to do is get to broken people. Um, really, uh, Europe isn't that broken. Uh, most of the areas of the world where people realize that they need help, uh, where, where there's some brokenness, that's where classical education tends to grow roots fast. Indonesia. We have a lot of that, uh, a lot of really good schools in Indonesia, a few of them. Really, I think advice for parents in those areas, I, I would hesitate to give very much because I'm just not, I'm an American and I don't have a lot of missionary experience, but just from the phone calls I've had and the people I work with, um, Christianity is fundamentally community-based. So, you know, I think one of the advantages we have right now, and I'll just kind of speak to this in the United States is that by any measure, <clears throat> we're living in crazy times. And that's not an overstatement, right? I mean, this is insanity, what's going on in our culture right now. Um, <clears throat> what they're doing to children, either aborting them or in the name of transgenderism or in the name of, uh, you know, gay and lesbian um, activity. Even the thought of it would have been complete mania a hundred years ago. So we're in a time when, you know, it's getting so bad, people are rethinking. Yeah. And I think that's an opportunity for us yeah. in the classical Christian education world to say, okay, <clears throat> we realize we're not the church, but what we are is a group of, of educators who can bring back Christian sanity to a world and let the world be deceived. If it's going to go this way, let's focus on the church being the church. And we're going to attract people like crazy because we're already seeing it. Um, I showed up at the school that I'm still affiliated with here and a, a parent that I, a guy I never knew, never seen before stepped up to me i was there for a board meeting and said you know i just read your book you had the book there and i want to say i wish i had seen this before um my kids now are a wreck um they've gone off to college gotten you know lost their faith and gone far left and all this other stuff and i think we're living at a at a time god has given us a huge opportunity i would rather live in these times where the distinction between uh, Christians and non-Christians should be crystal clear rather than back when I was 30, 40 years ago, when Christianity was in that zone of being kind of an accepted good. Yeah, it's forcing people to choose. You're either going to go hot or you're going to go cold. The lukewarm won't last anymore and people are struggling. Yet in many ways, it does feel like we're watching the wheels come off of the cultural chases around us. It's just collapsing, and people are asking ultimate questions, and they're seeking truth, and they know something's wrong, and they can't always put their fingers on it, but they know something is wrong, and they need help, and they're struggling, like you said. And that's why I think that this is something that uh, more and more Christians need to learn about. I hope that for some of those that are listening to this program, they'll think about it, they'll chew on this, they'll, they'll share this content with others around them. 
And to the families that you might be living in a tough spot right now, uh, listen to what David said. There's a ton of resources out there right now that you can go and find. You can find digital copies. You can get paper copies. There's a lot of material out there to support you and other families that you can fellowship with. Here at the Christian Emergency Alliance, we really want to help in any way that we can. We want to help the church stand. We want strong local fellowships scattered across the globe to make for one giant global body of Christ that is capable of withstanding the growing darkness around us. And this is, I think, one of the ways that we can help the church stand. Yes, we care deeply about persecution. Yes, we want to see missions advanced and the gospel proclaimed in all of these areas. But we also want to strengthen the roots of the church and the environment in which Christians are able to grow up, to learn, and to learn to think clearly and see the beauty and goodness of God in the world around them, even in challenging circumstances. So we're really thrilled to have you with us, David. I really appreciate your perspective, and we're going to continue to track and monitor all of this. Are there any words that you would like to leave with well, our I audience think, before um, we end? What you just said is I just want to state that a little a little bit differently and the same in, in, in support of what you're saying. The early church, it's often seen as a mission missionary church, but the primary way it drew converts was by attraction, not by sort of, uh, you know, missionary activities. The missionary activities were clearly there. Paul was a missionary, you know, most of the uh, missionaries were attractive. But if the church is the church, and if it lives differently, acts differently, behaves differently, if it's salty, people will be attracted to it. And that's the essence, I think, of the gospel, is to live our lives in Christendom in such a way that the attraction brings people to us. Really great insight for us. I think we're going to be reflecting on this. And if you want to learn more, grab the book. All the references that David made to his Substack, uh, to the pieces he's a part of, the documentary, we will be sure to throw that in our show notes so you can find it there. Um, David, really appreciate your time. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.